episode 99 of Shades Midweek, a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. My name is John Mark Rowe. I'm in Four Stream Studio with Mr. Brad Brown and Jonathan Haves. What's up, guys? How's everybody doing today? I'm just flabbergasted. Episode 99. Can you believe it? 99, Brad. It's crazy. Yeah. And everybody, of course, knows what that means for next week, right? Tell us, what does that mean for next week? Next week, episode 100, first ever, probably last ever, Shades Midweek Live. Midweek Live. That's right. So next Wednesday, February 23rd, be here at Shades Valley. We think we're going to be in the sanctuary, pretty sure, but it's not a big building. You can find us wherever we are. Oh, yeah, Um, we're going to be in the sanctuary. But yeah, and we're going to be set up in there to record the podcast live. Come at 6 o'clock. Bring your own dinner. We'll have tables set up for you to sit at and eat at with friends. And then we'll get started recording probably around 6.30ish maybe yeah. or something like that. And uh, we'll do our normal goof-off stuff at the front. We'll have an album and a book and those kinds of things. We'll even have an email if any of you write in for our email competition. That's right. So, Best email that we receive, we will read the night of the live recording. That's right. And so far, we've received zero entries. So if you're listening, write one, because you could win the prize by default. Right. <laughs> if we only get one entry, then I guess that's what we're going to have to read. So I'm, just, I'm shocked that yeah. we don't have more. I know, right? But there will be a prize. There will be a prize for that. And then the bulk of the evening is going to involve some audience participation. Yeah. And it's going to be fun. We're going to have some fun lightning rounds, some trivia, some other things. It's going to be great. It's going to be a lot of fun. So you want to be here next Wednesday, 6 o'clock. Bring your own dinner. It's going to be a good time as we celebrate the 100th episode of Shades Midweek. can't believe it's been 100 episodes. That's crazy. It really is nice. We are um, fresh off of the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl just happened two days ago. Did you guys watch that with your fam? Do anything special? I, any wings or anything <laughs> like that? Man, I should have. I would have loved some wings. I, I watched intermittently. Like I just kind of tuned in every now and then. I didn't sit down and watch the whole the whole game. What about you, Brad? I watched it. Yeah. It was fun. See, I mean What'd you, <laughs> what'd you think of that halftime show, John Mark? I thought it was awesome. The halftime show was solid. Let me ask you a question, like as a musician. Like what was anything actually live? Nope. It was all recorded. Well, the all, vocals are live, right? The vocals generally are live. But the way that so this is like sorry spoiler alert for all those who love to watch the Super Bowl halftime show I enjoy them majority of them are all pre-recorded tracks so if you watch the Super Bowl like they the Red Hot Chili Peppers for example got called out upon this a few years ago it's not a big deal because they all do it but for whatever reason when they zoomed in you could see the guitar player there was nothing plugged into his guitar there wasn't even a cable right well i remember, like the, nothing the other night i was like yeah there's no microphones on any of those drums right there yeah. were no mics on the drums anderson well, pock I was mean, playing how could they possibly set all that up in like exactly 30 it's seconds impossible it would sa- it would sound like trash and so yeah. as a musician that's why you pre-record that stuff because you wouldn't want to go i mean it's one of the biggest live events probably the biggest live television event that still exists millions of people watch it so you're not going to go out there and just hope 
that things that are set up in five minutes will work. Yeah. So that's why they pre-record all that music and they put it together and they have a whole show. It's really more about the spectacle of it. Because right. all like, the musicians are insane up there. All those like, guys are it, insane. They're not worried about messing up, so they pre-record. Right. That's not what's happening. Right. It's more about the production elements. So they had like all the those houses set up. They had like that really cool mixing console that Dr. Dre was on. Right. Yeah. It, it was great. Well, Fifty a <laughs> A lot of people were memeing about 50 Cent hanging upside down for a second it's when the, he first showed up. It's the music video. But that was the music video, but a yeah. lot of people were memeing it and stuff like that. But that was a, that was a cool surprise that, that he that he got to be a part of that. So yeah. Well, and even like with the vocals, because uh, I, I saw a lot of people going off about like, oh, it's 50 Cent lip syncing? And um, and the, the, the thing is, it's like, yes, like the vocals will be live, but they also have mo- they're, they they're have layered vocal tracks. Vocal tracks, yeah. Yeah, there's vocal layered tracks there because they're doing a – you try and sing, hanging Listen. upside down and and running around dancing. Oh, 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 was it was it Mary J. Blige? Yeah, she's fifty three. Yep. Right, fifty three. Yep. Right. This is the thing. And so, yes, there's a mix engineer somewhere in a truck that is hearing the mix and is probably taking a little bit of the live vocal and a little bit of the pre recorded vocal and making a nice mix of it together. So yes, vocals are li- like they have real microphones, but w- but what I'm telling you is that a uh, vast majority of all that stuff is pre-recorded, really just to make sure that everything goes well and that it's a good performance. Right. So but people, I have, act, no, I have no problem. with People it. act like it's a Millie Vanilli situation. It's not, and I'm like, it's not. M- Millie Vanilli didn't even sing their own tracks; they were singing to. <laughs> <laughs> right. I have no issues with it whatsoever. <sighs> And the game was great. I mean, <laughs> the game was great. Yeah, I guess there was a game too. Yeah, the game was great. I mean, the I felt bad for the Bengals. I did yeah. too. I was I was kind of pulling for the Bengals, honestly. Joe the Rams' Burrow. defense was just unstoppable. So impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So it, at least it was a good game, though. Totally. Yeah. That's what you want to see. And the commercials. Did anybody watch any commercials? Man, I didn't catch a lot of them. But yeah, one of the things that struck me was a ton of the commercials that I did see. Either I had already seen, like it wasn't like a special thing, um, or they struck me as being very normal. Like there were a few commercials that I was like, oh, that's a real special like Super Bowl kind of funny thing. So like, for instance, there was a, there was like a, I think, I think it was one of the 9 million cryptocurrency commercials. There was a lot uh, of Bitcoin commercials. There was, it's the one with Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Uh, in the hot air balloon. Yes. I'd seen that commercial before. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had not seen it. Um, well, you know I've they release it. commercials early now too, which I kind of which bugs me a That's little weird. bit. Like they'll put it out on their Twitter or whatever. Like watch, watch this, or there'll be a trailer for the commercial. It's like, come on. The, what? the Jones commercial actually made me laugh. Um, it was stupid, but it made me laugh. It was the one with which Tommy one? Lee Jones. Oh, that was, was funny. It was like the Toyota one. That was funny. And Leslie Jones, Rashida Tommy Lee Jones, Jones, Rashida Jones, and then the Jonas Brothers shows up <laughs> there at the end. I didn't see it. I'll have to. I'll have to YouTube. And uh, it. the best part is the Jonas brother pulls up, and Tommy Lee's like, "Who? Who are you?" <laughs> the, there was a funny McDonald's one with a bunch of different people where they would pull up to the drive-through, and the whole the whole thing was like they get up to the drive-through to order, but they always go, "I'd like." Uh, and so that's like all it is. Everybody's saying the same thing, and Kanye is in the commercial, and he pulls up in that huge, like crazy-looking truck that he has. And when he says "uh," they auto tune it. It's it's great. Sp- it's awesome. Speaking of Kanye, did you see him at the Super Bowl? I did. He had like a, he m- had a mask old, on. Had his old mask on. Yeah. Uh, so Ben and J Lo are back together, right? Yes. Wow. 
And by by mask, I should clarify for people. I'm not laughing like, oh, he had a mask on because he's like worried about COVID. No, 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 not a COVID no, mask. Not a COVID mask, like a full, like you couldn't see his face. Yeah. He had a full outfit on. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. He's was, going for it. That's intense. Man. All right, Super Bowl stuff. Cool. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> Good Super Bowl recap. Ah, uh, well, we got a lot to talk about, so let's we move on. Let's do an album. Right. My album for the week this week is an ambient record, an ambient instrumental record that I've been enjoying this week. It is called, let me find it real quick, Meeting You Between Spring and Summer. The artist's name is Chris Other. His last name is Other? Mm -hmm. I found it this week just searching for ambient music to listen to while I read and work during the week. Chris Other is an ambient musician based out of Brooklyn, New York. He's been releasing ambient instrumental records for the past two years. Um, And this is the most recent one that he just put out here in 2022. This track is called Meeting You for the First Time. Is it on Apple Music? Is that Mm O-T-H-E-R? Yeah. O-T-H-E-R. Chris Other. I can't find it. Um, I found it on Spotify. And it's on Bandcamp and SoundCloud. I would imagine it's on... It's on Apple Does he Music. Chris in a weird way? Nope. It's very pleasant. It is. Uh, I took this off of his Bandcamp page. Meeting You Between Spring and Summer is a record about the possibility of love and the inevi- inevitability of loss. Composed and recorded at home during a month last year where Other was physically injured and temporarily unable to walk. Meeting You Between Spring and Summer charts an arc across pain, hope, recovery, and human connection. It finds joy in both spaciousness and proximity, a work bound to one physical place, yet continuously in transit across locations, memories, relationships, and time. So, yep, that's the record. I've been listening to it here at work this week. I enjoy it. I love ambient music, so mm-hmm. it's right up my alley. It's nice. It's awesome. Check it, is, it out. It is on Apple Music. It just took oh. a second. Okay, cool. I'm glad you found it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if he's a, a, that big of an artist. I think he's got, I mean, 24 thousand listeners on spotify every month so he's doing well for himself i think Mm -hmm. all right so that's my album of the week ambient music let me know what you think about it Hey friends, and welcome to another segment of Bradford's Book Club. I am extremely excited about the book I'm going to be recommending today. The book is titled, The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross. It's part of a series, Short Studies in Biblical Theology. The author is Patrick Schreiner, and I'm reading this from Amazon right now just to put all my cards on the table. And it says that another author is Dane Ortland, who wrote Gentle and Lowly. I, I don't know if that means he's an editor. I'm a little confused. I probably should have done a little more work on the forefront of this segment. But nonetheless, let me read a little excerpt from the back cover to give everyone a taste. When Jesus began his ministry, he announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. But many modern-day Christians don't really understand what the kingdom of God is or how it relates to the message of the gospel. 
defining kingdom as the king's power over the king's people and the king's place. See that alliteration there, Jonathan? I heard that. KP, KP, KP. You like that? Patrick Schreiner investigates the key events, prophecies, and passages of Scripture that highlight the important theme of kingdom across the storyline of the Bible, helping readers see how the mission of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom fit together. So this is part of a lovely little series called Short Studies in Biblical Theology. Like I already said, there's a lot of great books. One of my professors actually did a book in this series, and I can't remember which one. The New Creation, founded on Amazon, right there at the bottom. This is not supposed to be an endorsement for Amazon by any shape of the imagination. But if they were to pay us some money, I wouldn't be opposed. Um, but it's uh, the books aren't very long, and they're very readable, very approachable, and I think can help us think about some different topics of Scripture that we may be a little confused about, like the kingdom of God, for instance. So, Patrick Schreiner also has a podcast titled Food Trucks in Babylon, and they have a lot of great guests on, a lot of really interesting conversations. So, you can check that out as well. And I think that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Beautiful. Food Trucks in Babylon. What do they talk about? Food? I mean, it's it's just a theology podcast. Uh, uh, Yeah, I got that from the But I think they do a little segment in the middle where they're like, what's your favorite food truck? You know, that sort of thing. Gotcha. I don't, I don't think cool. they say it like that, but, you know, I think that's their thing. So I, I appreciate that personally. Nice. That's cool. But, yeah. Well, you know, I was talking to my travel agent, and I, I told her, I said, February 15th, I want to go on a trip. Where and do you want to go? Said, she said, where do you want to depart from? And I said, I need to depart from Four Stream Studio. And she said, I don't know if that's possible. And I said, well... I have some Sky Miles, and I need three tickets. I need a first class, and it's only going to be one way. There's not a return trip. I'll work out the return trip later on the other side. And she said, okay, I think you've got enough Sky Miles to cover that. Where do you want to go? And I said, I need to go down to the email corridor. Wow. The email corridor. The payoff for that was just yeah. Totally worth it. I, I agree. You did that all from memory, too. Yeah, it was good. Wow. That must have taken a long time. I, I literally just thought about it while you were uh, reading about your book there. Oh, I'm glad you were so engaged <laughs> with what I was doing. Well, we got a couple of emails to read down here in the old corridor. The first one comes from uh, good old uh, Caitlin Pippins. Oh, Caitlin Pippins. Now, yes. there's Caitlin a Pippins. history. There's Pippins. a history here. Okay. The history was that uh, Kaylin emailed us once before, and I can read that email in its entirety really quickly. She said, hello again, sweet, sweet email corridor. I'm here to, and that's the end of that email. (laughs) Um, And if everyone remembers, John Mark responded to her and uh, wrote in a rather humorous way. Did we, we read it. We did read it. We did read Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. It's been read. I'll just tell you this. It ends with John Mark Darrow, the House of Grantland. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. He wrote as if he was the lord of a manor or something like that. Well, Caitlin has finally emailed us back and... uh, How many many months have passed? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Your email was in November. (laughs) All right, good. So, she writes... Father Darrow. I'm not sure what she's implying about y'all's relationship. <laughs> or maybe maybe that's meant to be ministerial. Maybe yeah, we're Catholic I think, now. I think so. Yeah. Father Darrow, 
I have finally awoken from my narcoleptic slumber to declare anarchy. <laughs> this would this would have made a lot more sense to people if it happened right on the heels of your email. <laughs> right. It's okay. She's referencing things from that. Right. The live stream has been taken captive and is fully surrendered to my creative control. Now, for those who don't know, Caitlin runs the live stream uh, a lot of times for us. And uh, we may or may not have been informed by some of our live stream viewers a few weeks ago that uh, she put in a few, shall we say, Easter eggs. It's taught me I need to be a little more careful with my sarcasm around her. (laughs) In addition... I have already taken my first hostage. You know him as Kenneth McCants, graphic designer to the stars. But he will now be formally known as my second in command. Formally known. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have no demands at this time for this email as but a courtesy to the round table. I should alert you, Caitlin. Our table is not round. It's it's, an oblong shape. Uh, I hope this email doesn't find you well. Caitlin Elizabeth Pippins, Keeper of the Scroll. So do we want to tell everybody what happened on the live stream a few weeks ago when Brad spoke? Oh. Because that's what she's talking about, right? She put a picture of his head up yeah. that said... Right like, at the beginning, right? Yeah, right at the beginning of your sermon. It was like, it's Brad time. <laughs> Just, I hope no one was offended. <laughs> it was not my publicist that did that, yep, yep, nor yep, the yep. posture that yep. I approached the pulpit with. Well, the bigger matter here is that uh, Kenny has apparently been taken captive, y'all. Kenny, uh, if you need help, just email yep. midweek at <laughs> shadesvalley.org. Sure. Um, yeah, Kenny's been in some weird situations in the corridor, because remember there was the whole thing with the Ashleys when they when they had that write-in and Kenny was writing in at the same time. Yeah. That's right. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Me neither. Well, Kenny, write us. It's also complicated. You have a chance to have your email read at the live show and win a prize, Kenny. That's true. Oh, yeah. So let us know how we can help you. Let us know, yeah. Thank you, Caitlin, for writing. We'll hear from you again in a couple months. (laughs) I don't don't really know how to reply to that. I don't know what to say. I think we just got to move on. All right, the next email we got is from Daniel Lawson. Daniel. Uh, is this Daniel's Daniel. first time writing? I believe that it is. Yeah, we love Daniel here at Four It's Street. always great to get another fan. I agree. And the subject title is Balloons. Oh, oh Daniel balloons. made it to the end of the law episode. For those mm-hmm. who don't know, Brad said anyone that uh, makes it to the end of this episode, send us an email with the title Balloons, and you'll win a prize. That's yeah. right. So the email says, what's my prize, Brad? Oh, you've been called on it, Brad. Your prize is you get to be mentioned on the email corridor <laughs> oh, during an episode of Shades Midweek. <laughs> well, he had a follow-up, so he sent that on Friday, February 11th at 3.40, and on Friday, February 11th at 4.38, <laughs> he sent a second follow-up email. Okay. And it says, Greetings. Upon further listening to the episode after that one, it has come to my attention that someone beat me to the punch, thus disqualifying me from said prize. If only there was a way to eradicate emails from recipients' inboxes, perhaps I could have spared myself from such tomfoolery. Nonetheless, I am unashamed. Warmest of regards, a trigger-happy nincompoop. I really Daniel appreciate Lawson. not only the integrity, but the prose of a lot of these I, letters. I'm telling that we're you, doing. we've got some talented writers yeah, writing into the old writers. corridor. It's yes. fantastic. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, speaking of which, we started reading an email last week from Douglas Abernathy. That's right. I talked to Doug this morning, and he said he was shocked when he opened his podcast (laughs) app and saw a podcast episode titled Questions from Doug. Well, he could not believe it. Prepared to be shocked again, Mr. Abernathy, because this this one's going to be titled Questions from Doug Part Do. Part Doe. That's right. Really giving Doug the time that he deserves. That's right. So Doug asked three questions, one for each of us, and we answered two of them. And uh, so that leaves us with just the question for Brad. Brad, do you want me to read this? Yeah, go ahead. And this is actually, we're we're transitioning out of the corridor. Uh, This is going to launch us into the rest of our episode for today. So, Doug writes, Brad, you are many things. And one of those things, I believe, is being in the know, especially on the latest happenings in Christian pop culture. I don't know. If, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> on one of the final episodes of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, they discuss the docent group and the different levels they help pastors prepare for sermons. There were also the recent headlines about Ed Litton, the new head of the SBC, having a sermon writing team that plagiarized sermons by J.D. Greer. So here, that's that's the lead up. Here's a question. Can you give insights into the range of sermon preparation practices across Christendom? (laughs) I really can't wait for you to tell me how the Greek Orthodox prepare their sermons. Yes, I've been researching Um, for the past two weeks. Wait, wait, the question's not done. Uh, If you were a non-pastor looking for a church, are there any sermon practices that would discourage you from joining a church? All right, Brad. Bring clarity to Doug's befuddlement. Yeah, so I really want us to have a discussion because what happened was the other day when we were talking about Doug's email in the foyer, we just started talking about this, and we had a great discussion. And then about 10 minutes into it or five minutes into it, I was like, Dang it! That could have been the podcast. So yeah, I'm all out of thoughts now. I share so them all the I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out some things, and I want us to dialogue. How do you guys feel about that? Great. I think that'll be fun. <sighs> Fine. Okay. So before I answer Doug's questions, there are uh, a few points that I want to make when we start talking about plagiarism and preaching. All right, and. The first is, as you get into this conversation, I think it's good to avoid extremes. That might be good for every conversation. I'm trying to think of a conversation where you go in and you say, I'm going to be super extreme on this point. I found that to be a very effective strategy in all discussions in my marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Let me know how that goes. Yeah, not at all. (laughs) I feel like one extreme is goes in wanting to defend pastors and maybe... Uh, have a discussion around what do we mean by plagiarism and part of that can be good but there can be a sense in which uh, pastors become excused from copying others other people's work and you have pastors that are passing off other people's work as their own intelligence their own insight their own humor and so this position at this end like really wants to defend pastors but can uh, at times uh kind of just say like, well, I think uh, plagiarism is okay. And there are really no issues here. All of this is just kind of made up. And then if that's one extreme, I think the second extreme is to overreact 
and to quickly condemn pastors, calling them liars, thieves, frauds, without looking into the particularities of each, each situation. And y'all might be shocked by this, but this overreaction tends to happen on social media. What? On Twitter? And on the blogosphere. I know. I don't know if you've encountered it. Never. Wow. So I think as we move forward, it would be good to avoid both of those streams. Kind of, um, what, on the one hand, excusing pastors and not looking critically at what's going on with this issue, but then on the other end, to overreact, quickly condemn pastors, and to not look into the particularities of each situation. Um, okay, point number two. Uh, Doug, a I know, lot of disclaimers. I know you think that I'm up on uh, pop culture in the Christian world. I have not finished The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I think I confessed this on a previous episode. And so I cannot speak with any authority about, one, the docent group, um, or what happened in the podcast. Uh, but I would like to address what you brought up with Ed Litton and J.D. Greer in that incident. John Mark, Jonathan, are you all familiar with this? Yes. Yes. Okay, so uh, for those that aren't, um, you are not in the Baptist political world and conversation. So right. if you've not heard of this, you're... Congratulations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you've avoided it. Uh, but essentially, there's been a lot of recent dialogue around preaching and plagiarism, and it's related to this incident. So, for instance, if you type in preaching and plagiarism to YouTube, you're mostly going to find people talking about preaching and plagiarism in light of this incident. So, for those of you that don't know, I, th I think it was last year, I think it was 2021, Ed Linton was elected the president of the SBC. The Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist for Convention. For those who don't know. Thank you, John Mark. Yes. And for many reasons, there were a lot of people that did not like that and did not want him to be the president because of his position on a variety of issues. So, to my understanding, some of those people that didn't like him and didn't want him to be president went to his website, his church's website, to try to dig up some dirt on him, whether that be in his sermons or whether that be on other things on the website, all with the goal of discrediting him. Yeah, can I just say that, like, you know... Uh, as someone who has a lot of things that they've said over 10 years, like just living out there on the internet, this kind of thing terrifies can you. Ima you. Can you imagine someone going through Shades Midweek? Oh, oh my and, 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 just, taking, and just cutting out little bitty things. And taking things out of context. Oh! Would that not be absolutely insane? Okay. Oh, my word. But so in doing so, uh, someone found that at times he plagiarized a... Uh, plagiarized, excuse me, J.D. Greer in a Roman series. Which J.D. Greer is the former president of the SBC, and he's a pastor of a well-known church. Yes. In, uh, oh, I don't know. North, I don't, North, North Carolina. Carolina. Yeah, that feels yeah. right. Sure. Summit Church. <laughs> yes, yes. So you have Ed Linton with this Roman series, and it's found that at times, like word for word, he's taking what J.D. Greer said when J.D. Greer did a Roman series years earlier. Um, it also came out in the process of this that he does a lot of his sermon writing with a team, with a group of men, a, a research team. I, I believe that he called it. I could be wrong about that. So, uh, and you can find the, the videos on YouTube. So, Ed Litton addressed these allegations. He said that 
uh, he reached out to J.D. Greer and he asked if he could borrow his sermon notes and material for the series that he did on Romans because he found it really helpful. J.D. Greer said yes and feel free to use whatever you want. So he said that, but then the second thing that Lytton did was he apologized. And he said, what I did wrong was that I did not appropriately cite J.D. Greer in his work. Hmm. And so, as social media does... It blows up. It went crazy, and everybody starts offering their opinions. And so there were tons of articles, articles written in Christian publications. There were articles in the New York Times. Mm. Uh, Critics of Lytton were calling it Sermon Gate. (laughs) Well, you know, and it should be noted, too, that he was obviously elected uh, to serve as, what, was it president of the SBC? Yes. Yes. The the title? So he had... He obviously had enough support as well, so I'm sure that there was a lot of back and forth between the two camps that voted for him and voted against him as right. well. Yeah, for sure. Yes. And so I why am I saying all this and why am I bringing up this point? Is because Cuz Doug asked. <laughs> Cuz Doug asked. Cuz questions right. from Doug. And and he and he referenced this. And I mean there's been so many conversations around plagiarism in light of this. But I think it's just important from the beginning to acknowledge that a lot of the current conversation has a lot of Baptist political baggage behind it. And that has shaped how not everyone, but how a lot of people have responded to the situation. So for instance, like say it comes out that Trump or Biden plagiarized a speech, right? As people start going online and giving their hot takes on everything, you know, you might step back and say, hmm, I wonder if people's hot takes on this situation are motivated by other things that are going on <laughs> politically. Could that be the case? No, Is everybody these are just people who are concerned, Brad, about the issue of plagiarism. <laughs> it doesn't matter who did it. Yes. <laughs> or why. Yes. And so, I mean, I don't want to overstate the point, but I think it's just important to acknowledge that a lot of times these conversations around plagiarism and preaching, they don't happen in a vacuum. Right. It's not just a pure conversation. Yes. Like there's and other things at play. Yes. And sometimes people can weaponize it to accomplish the ends that they intend. So anything else you want to say about that? Disagree? No, no. I, th- I think that's I think that's right on. And I mean, that's just par for the course in our current environment. You know, yep. it's, it's what can I weaponize to make my point and my person that i'm supporting whether it's political whether it's religious whatever it is what what can i weaponize to make them look good the other party look bad um and there's definitely going to be a double standard like if if that gets turned around and so i mean you see this and you see this take place in way more issues than just this right here but i do think you bring up an important point that that we need to keep that in mind with a lot of the current conversations happening around this issue it's not just about the issue yep Totally. Except here on Shades Midweek, we are going to have a pure conversation <laughs> about plagiarism. <laughs> exactly. Let's make that point clear. Yes. Um, and so I think all the hot takes and all the outrage and everything, that can make it hard to have a conversation about plagiarism and preaching in all of its complexity. And so while there are... Uh, black and white issues of right and wrong when it comes to preaching and plagiarism, there's a lot of gray, right? I mean, I completely disagree. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There's a lot of gray, and it's complicated. Let me me be you right here in the review process. Um, So so tell me about that, Brad. Where's the gray? (laughs) 
It's it's the uh, that was I, my best Brad impersonation. Any, anytime I do that, I try to go into like the guy from the Bible Project. I can't remember his name, but there's like the guy that gives all the information, and then the guy that asks the questions. Right, that asks the questions. Yeah. yeah. So what's going on there? Right. right yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um. Well, I think maybe we can start with the black and white. So first of all. I think everyone agrees, for the most part, that plagiarism is wrong. Yes. It's it's bad, right? And which, pastors shouldn't which, do it. Not to give a technical definition of plagiarism, but you know, just to lay something basic out there for people, it is taking yes. somebody else's work yep. and passing it off as your as own. As your own. Yes. That's, that's a basic definition of plagiarism. Right. And then when you get into um, the academic world, you can get into citing and all of that. But yes, what you said is the heart of it. Yeah. Um, and so, so I yeah, think so that's look, wrong. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I think when we look at plagiarism in, uh, different spheres, we begin to see this like kind of black and white plagiarism versus like gray plagiarism. So like, for instance, like I just said, in the academic world, um, when I uh, started my master's program, I had to take a course and pass a test on what plagiarism was, right? What counted for plagiarism, what didn't uh, count for plagiarism, uh, how to cite my sources, all of that. And then at every syllabus, there's a plagiarism policy, right? You can go to the university, you can read their policy on plagiarism. It's like, this is what plagiarism is, this is what it isn't. If you do plagiarism, bad things are going to happen, right? right. Um, and so while it's not always the case, for the most part, it's pretty cut and dry. Yeah, pretty black and white. And there's, there's, a, there's a higher bar too yep but because you know w- within the academic world you're supposed to be doing you know original research and all that and so there's this higher bar for you to cite all of your sources and tell where you're getting anything and everything so for instance one of the differences between a popular level book and mm-hmm. an academic book is an academic book is going to have 50 bajillion footnotes yes um you're going to open it up and literally there are going to be pages where there are more footnotes than there are text on the page. Yes. You know, but that's because of the standards that have been clearly black and white put in place. Yep. You must do this to avoid plagiarizing on the academic level. Yes, exactly. Um, but when you get into other spheres, it can get a little more complicated when you begin to talk about plagiarism and what constitutes as plagiarism. So, for instance, in music, JM, have there ever been any instances? No one has ever sued anyone over this. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this never happens. No, I was actually just looking up some cases right now just so that I could add something to this. Uh, maybe everyone remembers Sam Smith and Tom Petty and, and those songs. So Sam Smith wrote this mm. song called Stay With Me. Uh-huh. Won't you stay with oh, me? Yeah. And Tom Petty has this song that was written many years before that. And I won't back down. Mm. And mm. so the whole lawsuit kind of hinged upon almost like a three note, like three notes basically that also paired with a chord, similar tempo, whatnot. And I guess they ended up settling out of court. But these types of things are real weird because music you're only dealing with a certain set amount of notes and chord structures and the way that the chords interact with each other. Yep. So I mean you're gonna li- you could listen to a thousand songs that have the same G D E minor C chord progression. You know yeah. it just and, happens. And so even experts in the field are divided over was this plagiarism was yes. this not plagiarism? Yes, hundred percent. Right? Yeah, you can uh, say the same thing in the world of comedy, Jonathan. You and I have talked about this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's – maybe this has become just more of an upfront issue that I've been aware of because of social media. 
Um, but, uh, but plagiarism in, in the comedy world of like who originally wrote the joke or, or if there's jokes that are really, really similar, have very similar punchlines. Like, is that plagiarism, you know? Because again, mm-hmm. I mean, like in the yep. in the history of the world, in the history of jokes made, you're gonna run across some things that are gonna be a little <laughs> bit similar sometimes. Yep. You know, I mean, yep, how many totally. comedians make jokes about the airport and just the flight process? Like, are you are you gonna run up across like some similarities? So, so what constitutes plagiarism? When can you tell that somebody clearly? I mean, there are some instances where it is cut and dry. Yes, like it's a word for word rip off, complete with like comedic timing, all of that. Yep, totally. You know, but then there's other instances where it's like, okay, well, these jokes, they're they're kind of similar. Uh, did he really get it from him, or is it just the fact that they were dealing with the same topical stuff? You know. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So. Um, another one is like on social media and not just jokes, but I've seen like people reporting for sports on social media, tweeting something, someone else taking that same thing and posting on Instagram. And then someone saying, Hey, you're, you're taking my report, like all of that. I guess that's kind of getting into journalism, but not, not to make this go political. And I don't, I don't want to go down this route. I'm just using this for illustrative purposes. I'm not making a political comment here, but for instance, the Super Bowl that we just talked about. Yeah. Um. So I saw a news article, uh, this morning, that was like everybody was making the same joke after on Twitter after the Super Bowl, and it was literally the entire article was just a string of like over a hundred tweets where wow. people were like, people were like, everybody wait, the Bengals can still win if Pence will just overturn the results. <laughs> like everybody was making the exact same joke. Wow. <laughs> um. You know. Yep. And yep. It's not because they were all copying each other. It's just. It's it's a cultural moment and it's a cultural thing and they're right. all making the same pun, yeah, kind of thing. Totally. Anyway, go ahead. No, and so I mean, I think that helps us. The, all the examples we listed, from the academy to music to comedy, I think it helps us kind of see like this black and white plagiarism. This is a little oversimplified, but like this kind of black and white plagiarism, and then like kind of a gray area when it comes to plagiarism. And so I think that helps us we enter into the conversation about preaching and so for instance there are some situations in preaching where it's pretty clearly like black and white (laughs) plagiarism uh this person is in the wrong so for instance i heard of a church in georgia this will date me a little bit but they were starting a contemporary service for the first time at their church and uh, a friend of mine was attending and really enjoyed the service and I guess a few months into it, he saw a friend post a YouTube video of a Stephen Furtick sermon. And so he watched the sermon, he really enjoyed it. And then, like maybe a month or two later, the pastor at the church preached that same exact sermon. Like from beginning to end, illustrations, everything. Everything, yeah. And so it turns out that that service was not only stealing or was not only uh, using Furtick's sermons, it was using the entire like elevation service, like the themes, everything from beginning oh, wow. to end, and just copying it for a contemporary service. Wow. Friend reported that to the leadership, and the leadership there at the time said thanks. They looked into it, and according to my friend, they decided to continue to let the guy lead the service, how he was leading it, because there were a lot of young people coming to the church, and they were having a lot of success in that service. Interesting. So I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm a little biased, but I feel like you look at that situation and it's like, yeah, that feels like a kind of clear instance (laughs) of plagiarism that is deeply troubling 
on a variety of different levels. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's completely cut and dry, and, and it's problematic, um, not just from the pastoral standpoint, but for the, from the congregational standpoint. Like, like yep. there are more things going on there than just the issue of plagiarism. There's a philosophy of ministry issue. There's a what's our goal issue. There's there's what's happening in preaching and in the service. What's the point of it? All of it. I, I heard of a similar yep. situation not that long ago where a church was calling a new pastor and literally told him, like, hey, we want you to preach sermons from this popular preacher. Like yep. preach his sermons because we like them, and yeah. that'll free mm-hmm. you up to do other stuff. Yeah, and it's I'm. A, I, I, it's I, a real I, thing. Yeah, I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's a real thing. Yeah, yeah. Or I think like another situation that comes to mind is a pastor taking someone else's illustration, another pastor's illustration of his family, another pastor's illustration of something that they went through, went through, and then applying it <laughs> to themselves. And saying, I like this happened to me. And you're in the first person. I really want you to steal one of my <laughs> illustrations sometime and just start off with like, so my five kids, you know, or my wife like Holly. Oh yeah. my word. <laughs> oh don't what? change any of the names. Just yeah. Yeah. Just 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 roll with it. <laughs> just straight into it. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I mean, those are kind of in my mind clear black and white issues of plagiarism. But there are other instances that are more gray. And as I was reading some different articles for prep uh, for this podcast, I came across an article that J.D. Greer wrote. I wrote J.D. Gear in my notes. That's funny. Um, I'm, I'm just impressed was, that you prep for these episodes. Uh, now's maybe the time for me to admit. I, no, I do prep a little bit. I was it, about to say. It depends on what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but he wrote an article back in 2012. So this is a while ago before the incident with Ed Linton. And I, I thought it was helpful. He says that, the question of plagiarism in sermon preparation is rather tricky, primarily because we are interpreting a document, the Bible, which has been interpreted by thousands of people for the last 3,000 years. Almost everything we say has already been said elsewhere. If not, we have reason to worry. If you come up with something no one has ever seen before, there might be a reason. <laughs> the faith was committed once and for all to the saints. So sometimes when Jonathan and I are doing sermon prep, we'll come in each other's office and we'll sit down and we'll be like, hey, so I have an interpretation of this text, but I'm scared because as I read all the other commentators, no one else is saying what I'm saying. Can I run this by you to check? Like there's kind of a fear that comes with having this like fresh and new interpretation that nobody else has come across before. Yeah, New interpretations are not the goal. (laughs) <laughs> it, it's not you don't sit down to the text each week and go what can i say that's never been thought of before because yes. like Greer's quote says right there like you know the church has been faithfully doing this for thousands of years and so yes hopefully you are going to fall within the lines of, of orthodoxy that doesn't mean yep. that nothing you say is is or you don't apply it in a fresh way or have a different illustration or something like exactly, that. exactly exactly but uh but yeah you do get a little bit worried if you're being original <laughs> Yes, 100%. And I mean, the language that we use to speak about God, to interpret and make sense of the scriptures, we learn that language from other people. You know, like we're, we're given a language and yes, we make it our own. But if I were to cite verbally in a sermon um, every time that I got like a line or a phrase or an idea from somebody else, I mean, literally I could cite every single sentence. 
in, in, in a sense, right? Not according to like the academic standards of plagiarism. Right, I'm just right. saying if I were to really think about it, right? Well, when I think back, my youth minister was the one that said that we're, we should have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So right? every like, time you say that. You better you better cite that. You know, right? That it kind of helps get at what I'm, I'm the point I'm trying right, to make. Right, right, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Or for instance, like to give another gray area, uh, a pastor, John Piper, is re- is really well known for saying that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so, it's the first time that I say that in a sermon. Sh- should I quote Piper? Well, you might say, yeah, I think you should quote him. Okay. Well, if that becomes kind of a lens or a way that I talk about this reality of our satisfaction in God, in God's glory, then when I say something like, the more you find your satisfaction in God, the more glory he gets. Do I need to attribute that to Piper every time? Do I just need to attribute it to him the first time, right? Because if I do it every time, and I'm preaching to a congregation on a weekend and week out basis, like that's going to get old pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, so I think that just brings in like some of the complexity in regards to um, pastors citing others in a sermon. And I think it also kind of brings up the fact that we have different expectations in regards to like verbal communication and citing than we do uh, in like written the print world yeah. and written communication. Yeah. Well, and yeah. It, because one, in, in spoken word, it's laborious, you know, like you were just saying. right? Yeah, there. it ends up distracting. Right. I mean, if it's a direct quote, that's different. Right. Exactly. Um, but and I do think that there is a way uh, over time to be honest about your influences, like who's had a real impact on you and influenced you. I mean, musicians do this with music, right? They'll talk about their influences. Yep. And, and so, 100 percent, you know, that's just a yep. way of being honest and owning. Hey, if you hear kind of these vibes, it's because I've been influenced by those people. Yes, so, same thing. 100%. So, so like even you mentioned John Piper. I mean, I think anybody that has listened to him at all knows Piper's been influenced heavily by Jonathan Edwards. Yep. Like he owns that, and he says that, but he, yep. he doesn't, every time he makes that statement, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. He's not like, and I was able to think of that because of Jonathan Edwards' huge influence on me. Yes, you know? exactly. So, mm-hmm. for instance, you know, I, I mean, I talk a lot about our joy in God and in the glory of God and his satisfaction, and clearly, I mean, Piper's been an influence on me, yep. and I, that's not a secret. Right. You know. But it's also, it, but... Often it's multiple people. So it's Piper, but you've also been influenced by Jonathan Edwards, or you've also been influenced by Augustine on that. Or you could also find that in C.S. Lewis as well. Right, right, right. And and so, yeah, there's that multiplicity of angles. And over time, once again, if you're you're doing direct quotes, um, absolutely you should cite that even when you're verbally doing it. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. But over time, with most things, people develop their own way of saying things too. Their own, you develop kind of your own vocabulary, your own language on things as well. Yep. And so it, it becomes less of direct quoting from people and more of they've influenced your thinking. Yes. You know. Yes. And I think it's healthy, and I think we'll get to this more at the end. I think it's healthy, like you said, for pastors to reference who they've been influenced by and doing that in a sermon, doing that outside the sermon. But you know, also with sermons being online and posted to podcasts now, like our sermons are out there for the world to see, you know? And so right. if you, if I do quote 
John Piper or whoever it may be. And I reference that quote like six or seven times. And so I'm a pastor preaching and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to reference this again because everybody knows. Well, if I post that to a podcast, then it's out in the world and people are listening to it and they're like, oh, that's, that's like straight up John Piper or whoever. And, uh, but yeah, they haven't heard any of my other stuff. Yeah. They're not in the context of your local church. Yes, you know, exactly. That knows you've been influenced. Yeah. 100%. So, so once again, just make the point that like, yeah, there's black and white things that I think are clearly wrong that need to be addressed and we don't need to ignore. But I also think that there are some gray areas and, uh, some complexity. And so I think we don't need to overreact Right, we don't need to be driven by um, outrage that's happening online. Right, I think we need to look at the particularities of each situation and assess it from there. Right. I think that's why I say all that. Okay, so that was all preface, right? That was all preface. <laughs> so we only have ten more pages of notes. Oh my no, word. no. I so in light of all that, I I just really want to briefly uh, answer. Doug's question, and y'all can chime in as well. So, Doug's first question, can you give insights into the range of sermon preparation practices across Christendom? No, I cannot, Doug. (laughs) Next question. (laughs) Uh, Next question. So, I actually talked to Doug about this this morning, and I think that what he's getting at is, one, and Jonathan, this is where you can chime in, is Doug is asking, is it normal is it normative for pastors to use another pastor's sermon or another pastor's outline? Um, and then two, is it normal for a, a pastor to write his sermon with a group of people? All right. And I can't speak to the whole of Christendom, uh, but I can say that I do know that in some Baptist circles, and I just say Baptist circles because these are the circles that I grew up in, so it's right, what I'm right. familiar with. It wasn't totally uncommon for a Baptist minister to heavily rely on another pastor's sermon or another pastor's outline. So, for instance, and Jonathan and I have talked about this, there are actually books that were published with sermon outlines. Yeah, I mean, you can go to Amazon right now and probably just search sermon outlines and find like 50 books yeah. that are like sermon outlines for this and sermon outlines for And you that. would find all Jonathan's sermons if you did that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> About to throw something Hey, I can make that joke because it's not true. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and I mean, some of this might be generational. Some of it might be more specific to particular denominations or particular... I mean, I, mean, I don't know. I, I only know the experience of the circles that I have yep. have run in. Yeah, totally. There, there definitely are uh, books where you can buy, I mean, prefab sermons, if you want to call them that. Yep. Or there are books that are just books of illustrations. Yes. Where it'll be like topical. It'll be right. like, it'll be like, hey, uh, for illustrations about forgiveness, you turn to this page yeah. and there's just a whole host of them. Or, and, and normally they're like something like, a young boy was at recess and... He saw a bird. Right. You know, it's that kind of thing. Right. Well, and again, I think some of this is... That's not a dog. That's, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, again, I think some of this is generational. Um, yes. Because things that... So, I, I call those preacher stories, and I grew up hearing those a lot. It, it's, it's the, yep. it sounds like, to our generation, it sounds like a, a forwarded email. <laughs> um, that's what it sounds like. Um, yeah, it's true. Chicken soup for the soul is what it sounds like. Yes, totally. Um, but but I definitely grew up hearing pastors tell those kinds of things a lot. 
I yep. hear that a lot less now. Yes, and, from, and that's from, what I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't it, see that being the norm. Right. The Definitely not in our circles. Well, the overwhelming majority of illustrations I think that we use or that I hear other pastors our age use are either personal stories, like from your life, um, whether that's your life as a kid, your life now, whatever, uh, or more pop culture kind of illustrations. That, that, that tends to be the majority of them. And even when I do tell what I would consider to be a preacher story, so I can think of one off the top of my head. I've shared Horatio Spafford's story before. Horatio Spafford's the guy who wrote It As Well mm-hmm. with my soul. And I've shared the story behind that M, him. Yeah, But just to share that story, it feels like a preacher story to me because it's like in such and such year in Chicago, <laughs> Horatio Spafford, blah, blah, blah. Like it just feels yep. weird to, to share, even though I think it's totally legitimate to do, you know. Yes. But but the point being, these books and these kinds of things, like if you want to get technical, that's not plagiarism mm. because these things are being sold for this purpose, right? you know, and, and it's not technically plagiarism to do that. Is it best practice? Is it what pastors should do? That's a different conversation. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but technically, that's not plagiarism. And is it normal I think it probably just depends on the on circles. the circles. Yeah, yeah. I would say the overwhelming majority of pastors that I have known personally, both in growing up and now, I would say no, it's not normal. It's the exception. Yep, totally. The overwhelming majority of pastors I know write their own sermons. The other thing that is not normal uh, is ghostwriting. So essentially, having somebody else write your sermon and then. You deliver it. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I wouldn't say it's. I mean, other than when, that's what I do but, for Brad for all his sermons. Exactly. Sorry, turnabout's fair play right here. These jokes. <laughs> but I have talked to a pastor before that said that at one point in his career, Jerry Falwell, uh, his assistant, reached out to senior this Jerry senior. Falwell, senior. Yes, his assistant reached out to the pastor that I was talking to and said, "Hey, Jerry Fall was in a really be- busy season. I was wondering if you would send a few of your sermons to him." And Jerry Fall, and he did, I think. And Jerry Fall preached those sermons. And I would imagine, I don't have uh, the knowledge of this, but I imagine he did not give him credit. Right. So I know that that sort of thing happens. But once again, I would not say that's like normative or acceptable practice. So the second thing that I think Doug was getting at is is it normal for a group to be involved in? sermon prep. So essentially you have the pastor and then you have a group of people with the pastor and somehow this group is together writing the sermon. So the question is like, is this common? I think that's a hard question to answer. I would say that at larger churches, I think this tends to be more common that the pastor has a team of people that would be dedicated to maybe research yeah, I mean, it depends and, on what capacity you're talking about here, too, because, like, go, yeah. go ahead. I'd, I've heard of it in two capacities. Yeah, so I was going to say, like, essentially what they would do is, you know, on it, if you're preaching through the book of Romans, I mean, how, Jonathan, how many commentaries could you read on Romans to, like, go through everything? Like, you could read 50 commentaries on Romans if you, if you had the time. Now, no one has the time, but essentially with these teams, the ideas would be that the person would go to the commentaries, they would take the information, they would condense it, and then they would present it in a way that the pastor would look at. And as being part of the research team, there might be other tasks. Honestly, I don't know the ins and outs 
of all of that. But that's kind of how that would flesh out. I think where it would get sketchy is where you have a team of people and the individuals are heavily involved in the writing process, meaning like they're doing the outline, they're doing the illustrations, they they are essentially writing with the pastor, and then the pastor gets up and presents it as his own. So in my estimation, I think there's a way in which it happens that could be okay and, and helpful for the pastor, and I think there's a way in which it could happen where it's it's problematic. And the pastor is presenting the sermon as his own when really it was a team of people that gave like the outline, the illustrations, the the so on and so forth. So that's my take. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I, I agree with that. Definitely. For the most part, like uh, having a research group. I mean, in one sense, this is somewhat what a commentary is. Yeah. Like what a commentator has done is they have done the research in all the original sources. Yes. And have put it together in a digestible way. The reference page is insane if you look at a commentary. Right. I mean, it's like hundreds of books. You're like, who is this person? Right. And so these research groups, in essence, are doing that again. They're doing it. They're taking it one more step further because, I mean, some commentaries are easily digestible and very short, but there are others, especially more technical commentaries where like, yeah, I mean, to cover the amount of materials, just insane and nearly impossible. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so I don't have as much of an issue with with that. Again, they're not actually writing any of the sermon. Um, yep. They're literally just saying, hey, here's where the issues are in the text. Here's some things to focus on. Here's some yep. important things this person said. Here's the relevant material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's assistance in that it's it's time-saving, all of those kinds of things. Yep. Um, now, you got to be at a church that's got the resources to do that kind of thing. Right. And I know sometimes at smaller churches, a pastor might do that with a few seminary students. Like, um, you get two or three, and he talks about it with them. And really, in how I've heard it talked about, it's not so much the pastor getting like all of these resources. Is it, it's an opportunity for the students to see how the pastor right. preps and to be involved in that. Right. Now, so that's more of like the research group model. Now the other model I'm familiar with that it, it gets interesting and it's very similar to what you were describing. Yeah. Um, I've seen primarily at larger churches that are multi-campus mm. Uh, that have individualized speaking pastors at each campus. Oh, I see. But in order for everybody to be preaching, not the same sermon, but the same series, the same whatever, like they actually get all the campus pastors together and as a group, uh, like brainstorm and sometimes, and and definitely even brainstorming like the sermon outline. Like they will all make the same points. Uh, they may even brainstorm and trade illustration ideas. I'd, I yeah. actually know a church where there's one person whose responsibility it is is to formulate the outline. But they don't actually like like they all kind of it's it's almost like a it's it's almost like they got a, a blank a, a coloring sheet yep. that's outlined, but they fill it all in. Yes, so, and I imagine that that's well known among yes. the church. Well, and that's that's what that's the interesting piece is like you know um, this is known practice that that they do this and so like i don't necessarily have an issue with that from a plagiarism standpoint i'm going to get more into having an issue from a philosophy of ministry standpoint and what i believe about preaching and what Mm -hmm. i believe about the pastor supposed to be doing on the local church level which we can talk about in just a minute yeah um but i don't know that there's an issue going on there from a plagiarism Plagiarism. standpoint yep Yeah, yeah totally okay so 
you're, you're guiding this conversation. To Where are we going next? <laughs> to close it down, we're, let's let's answer the second question, and then we can call it a day. So Doug's second question was, if you were a non-pastor looking for a church, are there any sermon prep practices that would discourage you from joining a church? So, Doug, I would like to answer your question with a quote that I'm going to attribute to Tim Keller, just so everyone's clear. And I love what Keller says, and I think it kind of sums up the ethos that I would want my pastor to have. Brad, is it fair to say you've been influenced by Tim Keller? I mean, leave it to Keller to, in the midst of a complicated situation, just, you know, hit a home run. So Keller says, as he looks at the situation of preachers and plagiarism, he says, I think we need to be charitable to preachers and not charge them with plagiarism for every unnew idea. Brand new preachers especially are going to do a lot of copying of preachers that have influenced them. However... I think the problem comes in when a minister clearly has not done his own work on the sermon and lifts almost entire sermons whole cloth from someone else. If he takes some preaching theme word for word from someone else, or if all the headings almost in the same words are taken from someone else's sermons, or if he reproduces an illustration almost phrase by phrase, then he should give attribution. When the basic ideas of your sermon have come from some other brilliant sermon, you can clearly mention the minister and say, Rev X, whose great sermon on this passage has helped me understand it so much. Seldom does this kind of lifting whole cloth from someone else happen if you have spent hours studying the text and working out your own outline. The problem comes when you haven't given the text the time or when you have been too busy to read widely and pray deeply and develop your own ideas. So I read that quote from Keller because I think it's helpful in him kind of laying out some boundaries of what he thinks healthy practices are and what he thinks are problematic. And so I want my pastor to be interacting with commentaries. Um, I want my pastor to be interacting with other preachers. I want uh, my pastor to be talking about his sermons and having discussions. In wait, the midst wait, 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 wait. You don't want your pastor to just be him and the Bible and the Holy Spirit alone well, in the room? I, I did at one point in time, um, but then I Seriously, that's, went how, to that's how cults happen. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. It's true. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's how you end up with a, 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 you end up with a pastor who thinks that they're a pope. You know, right, exactly. I, I'm the sole person that has the understanding of the Bible. Yes, and it only comes through me. Yeah, 100%. So, like, I want a pastor that does all that. I want my pastor to learn from great preachers before him. And I'm, as we talked about before, I'm fine with others helping him with the research part and the processing part. Um, but then I think it's so important, and Jonathan, you can get in because this is what you were going to talk about earlier. I think it's so important for the pastor to do his own prayer, his own reflection, his own study, um, for not only interpretation, but for shaping and for um, discerning this talk about spirit led preaching, what the word is for the community for that Sunday. Right. Because preaching is not just a commentary, it's not just a survey of everything that's been said. It's based upon what the text says, what does Shades Valley, insert whatever church, need to hear um, today. And I think that's what pastors are called to do and empowered to do. And if the pastor's not doing that, then I think he's neglecting his responsibility 
to be a preacher and teacher of the word of God right. for the congregation. Some people might say that's a hard take. I'll, I'll stand by it personally. <laughs> yeah. No, my, my sermon cannot be separated from the congregation in front of me. Yes. Shades Valley Community Church. Like, it, otherwise I'm just a podcast preacher. Um, yes. You know, my, my sermon cannot be separated from the time in which it happens. Um, mm-hmm. like, like in other words, like we are in a certain moment in our yep. world, a certain moment in our culture, we're facing certain issues where all of these things are affecting not my interpretation of the text, but my application of it. Um, you know, and, and so, yes, I mean, I, I fully believe that the word of God is living and active mm-hmm. and it's the responsibility of the pastor to feed the flock in front of him. That's yep. not the responsibility of some other pastor yep. to, to feed my flock. And yep. so. I mean, I, I think it's just, it's so, also, I, I don't think I can preach the text with conviction if I haven't first uh, had the Lord convict me through yeah, totally. the text. Totally. You know, if I'm just janking what somebody else said, I mean, that's that's what the Lord convicted through the, and gave them a passion yes. for through the text and all that. You know, yeah, like, Dr. Smith, our preaching prof, would always say that you are not ready to preach the text until it has led you to worship. Right. And man, that has stuck with me. And that can look like a lot of different ways. Sometimes that looks like wrestling with it. Sometimes mm-hmm. that looks like sorrow. But worship can be found in the midst of it nonetheless. Right. And until I reach that point, then yeah, I'm not ready to preach it. Right. Well, I mean, I'll just give a, for instance, from this past week, Mm-hmm. Um, so this past Sunday, I, I preached the passage out of uh, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus confronts uh, lust. And he was talking about the righteousness of a transformed heart. And he's like, great, if you never commit adultery, but is there lust in your heart? Mm. Is a short version. Yeah. Um, and to just straight preach that text, uh, I would have only preached half of my sermon on Sunday, uh, which is the part where Jesus is convicting his yep. listeners right yep. there. That's what's going on in the text on yep. the surface. But because I know my congregation, and or I hope I do and pray I do, and I know people's stories and what people have wrestled through, what people deal with, and how certain things and, and words are going to hit people and how mm-hmm. they've related to this issue and all that, I know that one of the things I need to do pastorally is make sure People for people for whom this is an issue that they wrestle with in their sanctification, they know that this is not a word of condemnation spoken over them. Yep. They need to see who this is supposed to convict mm-hmm. and how it's also supposed to hit their heart, which I made an argument for on Sunday, is, is comfort. I would have never gone there were it not for my local setting, mm-hmm. you know, and, and my experience as, as a pastor. Um, yep. So that, that that's just a, a short example of, of that. So 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 Doug, totally. like like for me, my convictions around what a pastor is, what a pastor is supposed to do, what his responsibility is, like definitely would keep me personally uh, from attending uh, churches that didn't embrace that practice. I'm not trying to like sling mud yeah. or anything like that. I'm just I'm just saying like like for me, these are my convictions about what preaching is, what pastoring is, what a local church is supposed to be. So I, I want to be in a place, even if the preaching's not as good. Right. It's not as polished. It's mm-hmm. not as whatever like, you know, yes. But it's real and yeah. and it's authentic. And and this man uh, has wrestled with the text and wrestled with the Lord, and he comes to faithfully feed the flock. Like I'm like, yeah, 
Yeah. Yep. G- give me that dude over the podcast preacher. Yeah. I- any day of the week. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. So yeah. Sorry, I kind of got off a little bit there. Yeah. Well, and the last thing I'll say is I think it's I don't think pastors always have to do this, but I think it is helpful for the congregation to know who is the pastor reading. And who is, like, uh, Jonathan did this in the Revelation series. He referenced the Richard Bauckham book. He said, like, I don't agree with everything, right? Classic Jonathan. But <laughs> he said, like, this book's influenced me. It's been really helpful. And what that does for listeners is, like, oh, okay, well, there's someone else that I could read if I want to learn more. Or we did the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. We were, both Jonathan and I, were heavily influenced by Dr. Pennington. So we got him on the podcast. But right, we also right. referenced that. We said, yeah, we've been shaped. When we look at the Beatitudes, we've been shaped by his interpretation. It's not just his interpretation. And I I just don't see any problem in doing that. I don't think it takes anything away from the sermon. If anything's I think it helps clarify, gives validity to what the pastor is saying and points people in the direction they can go to a trusted resource to to learn more. So Yeah. Hundred percent. I have one more thing, but I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> so we might just we might just end it there. Oh well I, I wanted to talk about that one more thing. <laughs> can I just, uh, I've got the answer. You can you do it in three minutes? Uh, I can do it in three minutes. Yeah, go for it. it. So the question that Brad put forward right here at the end is like, what if a pastor is caught plagiarizing? Like clearly doing what we've been talking about, like as lifting whole illustrations, all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the particularity of the instances happening has got to, like those details have got to be dealt with on their own. Like it, it, you got to deal with it on a case by case basis. Yep, you like can't you, separate the plagiarism from the person. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I think you got to deal with it on a case by case basis. We've got to be clear about what we're talking about uh, with plagiarism. This is a black and white issues, this is gray issues, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think their response plays into this, just like with when you catch anybody in any wrong, you yep. know, um, what what's their response in the situation? And I I personally have watched this play out in both ways. I have seen. Uh, pastors who were caught plagiarizing who were incredibly repentant mm-hmm. um sorrowful uh submitted to leadership and anything that they wanted them to do to to go through counseling to share it with the congregation to ask the congregation for because i've seen that happen yeah um and we I, could have a whole other conversation about preaching in the modern world and preaching a sermon every sunday for 20 years in right. a congregation I mean, we could get into all that. You know, we could talk about the weight of preaching. We could talk about pastors that are preaching four sermons a week sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could get into all of that. And once again, that's not to excuse plagiarism. It's just to set it in the proper context. Right, right. So, but I think think the response to um, a pastor who's repentant and bears fruit in keeping with repentance, which means it's not a momentary, I'm just sorry I got caught. Uh, but you actually see the evidence that they are truly repentant in their life. I think that you can set up a process for a break and for restoration and mm-hmm. healing and all of that, uh, just like you would for any other kind of situation of that nature. Yep. But I've also seen situations where I have seen um, pastors respond where it's like, yeah, I don't see anything wrong. Not doing anything wrong. With what I'm doing. Things are going well. Yeah. I mean, and then it, the ball's really in the church's court. Of like, do you think this is wrong? Because if you think it's wrong, then you have to take disciplinary action, which yep. could even result in the pastor's removal. Yep. Um, which has played out mm-hmm. in in various places. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just I think that if it happens and the pastor uh, is repentant, you you work through that process of restoration and you lay down clear you you bring clarity 
of yep. like, okay, what does this look like going forward? Mm-hmm. What what are the expectations here of my leadership and my congregation for me citing sources, all yep. those kinds of things. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So the final thing that I will say, uh, Doug, just so you can know what kind of church you are attending, <laughs> the final thing I say is that, uh, to my knowledge, every person that preaches at Shades Valley Community Church uh, preaches their own sermons, that they do their own research for and that they write for uh, and, and all of those things. So to my knowledge, that's that's what happens here, and I, I hope it happens because of the convictions you heard earlier us talk about with our convictions about what preaching is and all that. And I will also say, to my knowledge, uh, any songs that are written out of here that are original, like the <laughs> psalm songs, are also 100% original. Um, <laughs> that's right. And, uh, and any songs that uh, we are playing from other people are properly cited via CCLI. Right. We talked about that last week. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we do our best to keep things on the up and up. Right, yep. If anyone is caught plagiarizing, they will be swiftly removed. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thanks for writing in, Doug. See what happens, everybody, when you write in a really good email. You get two whole episodes dedicated. Every time. It's a guarantee. Email. It's a guarantee. That's yeah, a Brad Brown campaign promise. Once again, this is a reminder. Please come to Shades Midweek Live next Wednesday. I believe it's going to be February 23rd at 6 o'clock. Bring your own dinner. We're going to hang out. We're going to have a good time. It's not going to be uh, maybe as serious as these last two episodes have been. We're just going to have fun. Okay, and um, so please come to that. Mark your calendars. Write in to midweek at shadesvalley.org. Um, best email that we receive between now and then will be read. Next Don't week. just do it for the prize. Do it because Brad, they should write in because because of Shades Midweek, you're part of the conversation. I will see you next week live. <laughs> <laughs>